Hello, everybody, and happy New Year's to you all. Happy New Year's to all of the listeners of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today is the new year. Yes, finally, we are into 2023. We hope that 2022 was great for you all. It was great for us. We were glad to expand and start on a, a couple of different types of episodes and increase our team here at Nailed It Ortho and we hope that you all have gotten some good value from uh, listening to our episodes and at least learned a little bit about orthopedics. That was a, kind of the whole point of this podcast just to go over orthopedics and education and we hope that you all had a great 2022. We have a lot of cool things in store for 2023 going along with our podcast so definitely stay tuned. Uh, some big announcements coming soon here. So just just again, just stay tuned. And if you haven't already hit the subscribe button, but we are back to kind of another one of our classic type episodes today featuring Dr. Patrick Denard. We are going to talk a little bit about rotator cuff repair. So we have prior episodes featuring Dr. Stephen Choate on rotator cuff tears, kind of a little bit about the basics. We have a couple other episodes, one featuring Dr. Justin Mitchell going over superior capsular reconstruction, and one featuring Dr. Joseph Abu, where he talks a little bit about superior capsular reconstruction versus a balloon for irreparable rotator cuff tears. But in this episode, we're going to kind of just take it back to the basics of fixing rotator cuff tears, mostly arthroscopically. So we're going to talk you know, kind of a little bit more about the operative side of things. And we're going to talk about different tear types and kind of how to fix different tear types and what may go into, uh, you know, kind of your stitch configuration. We'll talk a little bit about the anatomy of the cuff. We'll talk about some tips on actually seeing the tear. So, you know, what is the pump pressure, what that has to do with anything. We'll talk about the tear patterns and We'll also talk about some advanced arthroscopic mobilization techniques for kind of these these large uh, retracted tears. And, you know, he, Dr. Denard did, did a, does a great job in uh, going over this and breaking it down a little bit more about Dr. Denard. He finished his orthopedic surgery residency at Oregon Health and Science University. He did a fellowship in advanced shoulder arthroscopy at the San Antonio Orthopedic Group uh, under Dr. Steve Burkhart. He also did another fellowship in Lyon, France, under Dr. Um, Walsh as his fellow direct, fellowship director in shoulder reconstruction. Uh, he is very active in education and publishing. He sits on the editorial board for a couple of different journals, uh, some to mention the Journal of Clinical Method Medicine and Orthopedics Today. He is a general reviewer for multiple journals, one currently being the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. He is also the director of the Oregon Shoulder Fellowship. So without further ado, uh, we're going to go ahead and hop into today's episode. And as always, we also have a YouTube video that accompanies this episode. If you would like to look at some of the things we're talking about and go ahead and enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Dr. Denard, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, happy to have you on. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm hoping we can um, talk some good good things about rotator cuff repair and uh, really dive into the surgical techniques of, you know, of how we kind of treat these. Um, but at the beginning of our podcast, what you'd like to do is just get a little background, just getting to know you a little bit better. Um, and then we can go ahead and hop into the topic in a bit. But, you know, I guess 
just to give listeners a little bit of background, uh, what kind of made you or drove you towards this, you know, the specialty of, you know, sports and doing mostly shoulder elbow cases? Yeah. I mean, in residency, you know, I really liked the idea of being able to be an expert in one area, but still have diversity of what you're doing. So for shoulder in particular, I really liked the, I was, I was in love with arthroscopy in general but I liked being able to cover all the bases, right? Arthroplasty, fracture, et cetera. So I think that's what made me choose it over more over sports per se, you know, is really the diversity of what you get to treat and be able to still be, you know, an, an, an expert in the area. So. All right. And, and looking back at it now, is there um, any ad- advice, you know, that you would give yourself, because we have a lot of residents and, you know, that fellows that listen to this and some people that are about to maybe start in a practice, uh, any advice that you would give yourself or give somebody starting off new into in a practice or into their career from kind of what you've learned over the time? Um, so many different areas, right? I think that, <laughs> uh, I think you know, the biggest things, there's still the principles, right? Is asking yourself what you, where you see yourself in five years and 10 years, what you want to, what you want to become. And then if you, um, once you establish that, you can routinely ask yourself the, the question of, okay, so for me, I said, I want to be an expert in the shoulder. And um, so for me, um, and initially that was actually backing up. That was, I wanted to be an expert in orthopedics. I just wanted to do really well and get a good fellowship. So I, st- I wanted to get, I wanted to do well in my OIT. So I read a paper every day when I was walking around residency. And then, then that shifted into when I knew I was going to go on shoulder. I was like, okay, I want to be really good at shoulder. And so I would read all the time and um, you know, that just added up. So the point being that if you, it's hard to know uh, sometimes I think to exactly how it's all going to end up. But if you have the idea of concept of who you want to be or what contribution you think you want to make, then if you back up and ask yourself, what would that person sort of do? You start establish habits that lead, uh, lead to uh, things over time, you know? So I've had to give it, I have to give a talk coming up about how I established a private practice and a, you know, a private academic practice in a small town in Oregon, right? And as right. I look back at it, it's really, there's just all these steps along the way that added up. But throughout, I was just trying to hold to this principle of making somebody who was an expert made a contribution to its shoulder. So I'm not, you know, it's, I don't know, I don't know if that answers it, but. No, that helps out. It helps out a, a lot. And one day I hope to, to get to the point where I'm reading a paper a day in residency. I haven't but I need to, I try to do some type of reading, but I think that's a great idea for anybody that's listening and starting residency or in residency uh, would be just to kind of get at least some type of knowledge or to be acknowledged every day. Yeah. You got to have a background. Yeah, very true. And, and the last question I have for you is, you know, we, we talk about orthopedics a lot, but do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedics? It can be uh, anything with kids or sporting or yeah, cars, family. whatever. Yeah, it's all family for me right now. I have 11 year old and 14 year old. So, you know, when I'm not, when I'm not practicing and doing my research, I'm completely spending time with them right now. You know, we love skiing in the winter, um, doing some, you know, traveling in the, in the summer, but coaching my kids soccer. So that's six months out of the year here. So, um, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, 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 
I, I tried skiing for the first time last year and, and going down the hill was fine, but stopping was a little hard for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I taught them both how to ski when they were three years old each. So they, they're really good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess we can, we can transition into today's topic and talk a little bit more about it. kind of, kind of rotator cuff repair and we'll get into nitty gritty. Um, but just, you know, just kind of giving a little bit of background first, what's the, uh, I guess the, some important anatomy to know about this because I'll, you know, we'll read and you'll hear things talking about the rotator cable and the crescent and you kind of, what, what is that? And, and why is it important when, when I guess we're thinking about repairing the rotator cuff as far as function is concerned? I mean, I think it's sort of like what we were just talking about how you get somewhere, right? It really comes down to the principles. So in arthroscopy, you have to see it first um, and that's going to be affected by, you know, your, your fluid control, your visualization, your angle of uh, visualization, where your scope's coming in. Um, but then the anatomy, you know, you got to be just because the field is clear, you have to know what you're looking at. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, it's really important to have a good understanding of the rotator cuff footprint, uh, understand the, the cable crescent complex. I think a lot of people do that pretty well. Um, but I think in particular, what's, what's probably missed the most, most commonly is an understanding of the subscapularis insertion from um, a rotator cuff standpoint. If you're gonna do really high level arthroscopy and massive cuff tears, you need to fix the subscapularis. And a lot of people um, will miss the, what's actually going on there uh, still at this point in time, even though we've been talking about that for years, that's, it'll be a, it'll be a, um, those tears still often get missed. So. Okay. So, uh, so what, I guess, what would I say? You mentioned a little bit earlier, first thing you got to do is see the tear. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've been in some cases where, you know, you see a lot of bleeding and, and you're trying to figure out what's what, I guess, what, you know, what techniques or, or tips or tricks or anything have you um, have you developed over the years to help you at least start to visualize the cuff when you're when, you know, when we're talking about the operating room and all these different factors that we can change? Yeah. So, um, you know, principles here, you want to I like scoping lateral because the blood pressure is lower. OK, right. blood pressure is up. That's a big problem. So just naturally, if somebody lays on their side, their blood pressure is going to be lower, right? Your blood pressure drops when you go to bed versus sitting up. Um, and if you need the anesthesiologist to drop the blood pressure, they can do that more effectively. Um, I don't think, I mean, I like to use a pump. I have colleagues who say they do not use a pump. I usually start with a pump though at 40. Uh, yeah. And uh, Burkhart used to start at 60 and, and, and go up from there. I, I've just found that, you know, I, for me, I can start at 40 and uh, add epi to the bags. And that's pretty effective. Um, one thing, you know, is that if most of my patients will get an interscaling nerve block, so that drops their pain levels. If you do not do an interscaling nerve block, you know, you'll, you'll find sometimes your blood pressure will rise a little bit higher right out of the gate. And so, you know, you want to be preemptive about giving them some um, local anesthetic at the very least, if you're, if you're going to go without an interscaling nerve block and there's pluses and minuses in interscaling nerve blocks. Um, 
If it is a massive tear or a revision tear, I do like to use uh, a single gram IV of TXA. So transient acid, right? Because that will help with your visualization as well. Um, and then the last thing is really about outflow. You know, I, I don't use outflow. Um, I really just try to limit that because that, that comes down to turbulence, right? And you get this Bernoulli effect where outflow leads to negative pressure that draws blood out of the vessels. So, you know, I try to, I try to limit that as well by just having the assistant keep pressure on the skin. I guess probably really the other, the other last thing is knowing where you're dissecting, you know, because if you're dissecting in the joint, you're not going to run into much of an issue, but as you start to go into the subcoracoid space, as you start to go medial to the coracoid, or as you go subacromial and you go medial to the muscular tennis junction, you're going to run into more vascular areas and you, you know, you want to preemptively use electrocautery just to prevent uh, bleeding as opposed to using a shaver. Of course you need to kind of go back and forth, but it's better to be preemptive. So. Right. And so to kind of recap some of the things you were saying, you're thinking you're saying you control the blood pressure uh, yeah. by many ways, but one is going to be just to have them in the lateral position. And then two is also with that, with the uh, interscaling block as well. It can help with some pain, um, things of that sort. And then right. you also mentioned the pump presser. So you start is 40, the typical, I know, I know I have, you know, I work with attendings that don't use a pump and I work with some that do. And next time I'm going to pay more attention to, to the, to the, uh, to the numbers that it's on, but is 40 typically like around there pretty standard for starting their pump pressure. 40 is pretty, pretty common. Yeah. I think 60 is on the higher end that you'll hear. Yeah. Okay. Um, the one nice thing about a pump too, you know, probably in most cases you can get away with gravity. Um, but a nice thing about a pump is that if you do have a period where you have bleeding, you can, you can typically do a lavage or, you know, a flush, meaning you double the pressure for a short period of time or it goes up by 50%. So, you know, that's, that's a nice part of a pump that you can't do with a gravity inflow alone. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've seen that where it'll, you know, say pump it up to, you know, 15 yeah. for a second yeah. while you try to get the beater and cauterize it, for example, like exactly. we talked about earlier. You got, you got it. And so those are, you know, we, you know, we're in the case, we see the tear, we, we can notice it. Um, can you quickly just kind of touch base on some of the, these major tear patterns, you know, looked and I know there are a couple different ways to, I guess, classify, uh, classify rotator cuff tears, but it seemed like the most common was just kind of just based on their shape. So can you kind of walk us through some of these uh, different shaped um, tears and you can talk about, I guess, kind of what you see and anything that makes one different versus other, like why was the importance of it? Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, tear pattern is the tear pattern is going to dictate your repair pattern, right? So when we're talking yeah. about the superior cuff, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, you know, the mobility of that tear is going to affect how you want to repair it. So crescent-shaped tears are typically mobile from medial to lateral. Um, they're going to be typically on the you know, two to three centimeter size max. They're going to be typically amenable to double row repairs. So basically you pull straight medial to lateral, you get an easy reduction with very little uh, sense of uh, dog ears or mismatch anterior and posterior. Um, typically on an MRI, you're going to be able to predict those because those tears are going to be less than three centimeters in size, both on the AP 
and the lateral views, so in the coronal and sagittal views. Then you move up to your longitudinal tears, anterior L-shaped tail, reverse L-shaped tear, U-shaped tears. These tears are going to be, um, because they're longitudinal, they're going to be typically three centimeters or greater in one plane, but not in the other plane. So for an example, you might have a tear that's three centimeters on the coronal view, but on the sagittal view on the MRI, it's only two centimeters. So that's, and that's going, and it's going from front to back, but that's going to be an anterior L-shaped tear. These tears are typically uh, more mobile from lateral, more mobile from anterior to posterior in addition to the side to side. So you're going to um, have to follow those by reducing. And so first thing you want to reduce is you want to reduce over medial to lateral, but then also assess anterior to posterior mobility and you'll be able to see the differences. And then lastly, you know, the um, massive contracted tears are going to be, those are tears are going to be greater than three centimeters in size, um, both coronal and sagittal views. They're typically going to require interval slides to get um, mobility, uh, the minimum anterior interval slide and continuity and capsule release. We can debate about posterior interval slides. Um, typically, you know, for chronic um, tears, these are going to be more single row type of repairs that you're going to be performing because of the limited mobility. But they're going to be, they're going to have rigidity both. They're going to be less mobile from A to P and from medial to lateral and they're complete two tendon tears. Okay. So, so just to kind of summarize, so we have our crescent tears, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, have good medial to lateral mobility. So you'll be right. able to kind of pull that tissue pretty easily over Yep. And 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 do your repair if you're doing a double row versus single row repair. Yeah. Um, and actually, can you quickly touch base on the difference between single row and double row? I remember as an intern, I kept hearing those, and I just didn't want to ask. And I, I just had to just Google it on my own. But for sometimes we have some you know interns or second years that are listening to this who may not have started have done their sports rotation. So what is a single row repair versus a double row repair, and and is there any differences between the two? Yeah, so single row, as the name implies, is just a single row of anchors that goes across from um, anterior to posterior on the tuberosity. Um, typically, somebody will place an anchor every uh, centimeter to centimeter and a half. Um, and there'll be, there's some variance of where those anchors are placed, whether they're placed all the way medial against the head or if they're placed all the way lateral, but, um, uh, but a single row would be one set. Double row would be you have two sets of anchors where you have a set of anchors along the medial aspect adjacent to the articular margin. And then you have a set of anchors laterally. The traditional double row that was initially described by Lowen Burkhart was a independent repair where there was two medial anchors that had sutures passed up through the cuff in a mattress fashion, tied down. And then the lateral edge was brought down with simple sutures through the lateral anchors. Everything was tied. Okay. Now we have what are called suture bridging, or some people like to call these transosseous uh, double rows, which means the medial and the lateral rows are linked. And that linking occurs because the lateral anchors are knotless in fashion. So you have sutures that passed up medially, maybe or maybe not, knots are tied, and then they are brought over to lateral anchors to secure the suture limbs down. And that leads to compression of the footprint as you get that fixation. And that compression has um, a wedging effect so that when the cuff is pulled medially, 
you not only get increased contact area and pull out, but you get a wedging effect of the tendon against the tuberosity. So that's, you know, fundamentally. And then there's clinically, what does that lead to? Well, okay, biomechanically, double row is better as it would make sense. You got more sutures, contact area, pull out strength, et cetera. Um, when you look at healing, healing is generally better with a double row repair. When you look at functional outcomes, however, the data is often less clear. And that's because our functional outcome data does not always reflect exactly what is going on with um, healing in terms of how the scoring systems are designed. The other thing that clouds it too is that, you know, a, a, uh, I don't want to say that one should do a double row repair for everyone because you can, some tears are just, as I said, not amenable to a double row repair and you are over tensioning by doing a double row and then you can get secondary failure to the cuff. So. And, and when you say healing, is that where they, is that, are those studies where they look at the MRI a year afterwards and see that the cuff is healed? Is that how they, how they typically. Correct. Yeah. Generally speaking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Speaking, minimum, minimum of six months. Right. Right. Okay. And so those are our crescent shaped. And then you mentioned kind of our U or our L shape. Those kind of right. uh, bigger tears, three centimeters, um, three centimeters where it has more um, A to P uh, mobility. So for right. these, you're saying you can do a, uh, like a side to side suture or suture. We'll do side to side at some point, margin convergence to bone for an anterior L shape, for instance, you gotta, you know, you'll typically bring down the edge and bring it to the anterior aspect of tuberosity, do margin convergence there, um, and then do side to side more medial to that. So um, you got to be very careful though. U-shape, U-shape is really not that common. Okay. Um, people are seeing a lot of U-shape. They're probably over calling or um, they may be missing some other anterior L-shaped tears or reverse L-shaped tears or even massive contracted. Because if you think about it, it makes sense that you would get a tear of the anterior aspect of the rotator cuff. So the anterior cable attachment, and it would start to pull back and over that could be an anterior shape tear. Okay. we got a posterior tear and that gets in you into a reverse L shaped tear, but it doesn't often make sense to just have the supraspinatus go over and be absent. I mean, you, you can see that, but it's not that common. Ah, okay. So you use R's column, but the L's or versus, yeah. uh, but the crescent shaped is, is the most common. Is that right? Crescent's most common. And then you'll, you know, and then you'll see your, uh, your L shaped tears and your massive contracted tears. Okay. So these, uh, and I, would, these I tears, probably see massive, I probably see massive contracted more than L shaped tears. Really? Yeah. Because that crescent becomes, you know, as it becomes larger, it spreads out uniformly and pulls over. Ah, oh, that yeah, that would that would make sense. Okay, and and you mentioned a little bit earlier um, for kind of these massive contracted tears. It seems like most of the tears we've been talking about, like the crescent U-shaped L's, we're assuming that with just simple releases that we're able to move the tissue and pull it back to its anatomical footprint and get a, a good repair, you know, with an anchor or whatever it may be. But for these massive contracted immobile tears, you mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, doing an anterior slide. Can you do you, you again mind just kind of going through what an anterior slide is versus a posterior slide and when you use, may use one versus the other? Yeah. So anterior slide classically is described as going between the 
in the, between the supraspinatus and the subscapularis tendon, right? right. Um, I never do that. I always do what's called an anterior slide in continuity. What that means is that you preserve the rotator cable attachment, what is known as the comma tissue that you'll see inside the shoulder because you're trying to preserve that link between the subscapularis and the supraspinatus. Okay. Uh, and you can, and by doing that, you can preserve the mechanics of the shoulder, but you can still get the same effective release because the goal of what you're doing is you're trying to release the coracohumeral ligament and that ligament will get scarred in as you get medialization. It will get scarred in to the base, the base of the coracoid will scar to the undersurface of the supraspinatus tendon and sometimes to the top of the supraspinatus tendon. So your goal of your anterior slide and continuity is to really improve that mobility. And typically you're going to get anywhere from maybe one, sometimes two centimeters of increased excursion based on doing anterior slide and continuity. Now, we didn't talk on tear patterns about the subscapularis. That's a whole nother topic. But if you're doing a three-sided release and have a big tear of a, you know, say subscapularis going up to the supraspinatus tendon, by definition, if you, you're pretty much going to do an anterior slide and continuity to release the subscapularis tendon because you're going to work on both sides of the subscapularis, you're going to go to the base of the coracoid, you're typically going to go just to the top of the coracoid at about the, um, between the 12 and the two o'clock position on the right shoulder and really re release the coracohumeral ligament. Okay. So, so this, uh, again, this, this slide in, in this continuity or in continuity is when we're leaving some of that commissine tissue. So it's kind of that yeah. superior glenohumeral ligament. You're leaving that tissue, but you're releasing some of the other, the other tissues between the, uh, between the leading edge of the supraspinatus and the subscapularis. Exactly. You just, and it's important to say, okay, it's harder to see if you leave it intact, but it's important because once you repair the subscapularis over, then that helps decrease tension on your supraspinatus because it's connected, right? It's just like points of fixation. More right. Fixation you have in fracture setting, you have decreased resistance to failure, more, more points of fixation in a rotator cuff, you have decreased chance that the cuff is going to pull out. So you want to, Want to maintain that natural anatomy as best as you can. And so, say that would be that'd be useful for a, re a reverse L, right? And mm -hmm. so, at, at what time do you use um, like kind of the double uh, the double slide? Because the anterior slide and there's also a posterior slide. Yeah. Is that correct? And do you mind kind of describing right. so what that is? Posterior slide will work very effectively. Posterior slide, you go between the um, supraspinatus and the infraspinatus should go toward the base of the scapular spine. And both of these, by the way, what you're really doing is you are releasing the medial robust attachments of the superior capsule because that becomes confluent anteriorly with the corporate humor ligament and then posteriorly becomes very thick at the base of the scapular spine. So a lot of work has been done on the superior capsule the last couple of years. And that's, that's really what it comes down to what you're uh, really releasing. So posterior slide can be very powerful way to improve mobility of the uh, infraspinatus and supraspinatus tendons. 
the downside of this though, for me is that you violate that rotator cable crescent complex that helps distribute the forces. So when we have that rotator cable complex, we didn't talk about it yet, but it really serves as this suspension bridge type of model where it's transmitting forces throughout the rotator cuff. So if you can get your anterior attachment down, your posterior attachment down, that's your really your basis for, uh, for a partial repair that you're restoring the force couples. Well, if you then go and do a posterior slide to improve mobility and you take down that cable crescent complex, perhaps there's a downside of doing that. So for me, I'm very, uh, I'm very cautious about doing posterior slides um, as a result of that. But uh, it, is a, it is a powerful way to get mobility of the rotator cuff. Right. And, and I guess just to quickly go again, go over again, this rotator cable crescent complex. So the cable is kind of like that thickening of the, of the tissue or thickening of the uh, cracrohumeral ligament. And then that function such as a, as a suspension bridge, then you have the, uh, the crescent tissue, which is that thinner tissue, which actually attaches down to, uh, to the right. tuberosity. Right. Yeah, and your most important attachments are your anterior and your posterior attachments. There's a few studies that have looked at that. So people who have pseudoparalysis or the inability to raise their arm typically have a um, disruption of at least one, but oftentimes both rotator cable attachments. Or if somebody has an anterior rotator cable detachment, they're more likely to develop progression of their rotator cuff tear. It's often why anterior superior rotator cuff tears, right? Just posterior bicep tendon typically they are more symptomatic when you see a lot of them because actually that's, it's just an area that causes uh, symptoms for the patient and then goes on the progression more rapidly. And, and one question I have is, so you would think that if you're doing a posterior slide and you're, I guess, releasing these tissues in my head, I think in line with the fibers of, of the tendon per se, that you may be disrupting the tissues in the A to B, A, A to P plane, but overall, you know, I guess firstly, just thinking about, it, I think, well, you probably wouldn't be weakening it that much if you're going in the, in the, um, in the direction of the fibers of the tissue. Cause when you, when you do this, are you using a, a freer or something or, you know, like, yeah, you, I, I would think that, you know, yeah, you'll go scissors and you just go right through it, but you'll go basically right through that posterior cable attachment to do it. So Okay, going right through yeah. that. Yeah, now one idea is to try to do sort of a posternal slide in continuity, and I've played with that, but um, the difficulty there is that, so you don't take down the tendons attachment, you go, you go more medial, but the difficulty is that you get limited by the suprascapular nerve because the suprascapular nerve runs right um, adjacent to the scapular spine. So if you're doing that blindly and can't see the, the nerve, then you perhaps you know, put that nerve, you can put that nerve of jeopardy at risk. So. Okay. All right. That, that makes sense. And then kind of looking or going back to some other just, you know, surgical principles. And we know a lot of times we just use, we use bone anchors now instead of like, I guess kind of the transosseous sutures per se. I guess the standard of care for most rotator arthroscopic rotator cuff repairs is going to be repaired using bone anchors. Is that right? Or are there some other ways that is commonly used to fix these? Yeah. Most commonly you're going to see suture anchors. Um, you know, there are, there are people who talk about doing transosseous tunnels arthroscopically. Uh, those have not gained widespread adoption just because it's, 
they're more technically difficult to manage and you get limitations of bone quality. Um, I think that they can probably work in, in people's hands, but the, the mainstay of uh, treatment is really um, suture anchors because of the uh, ease of doing those arthroscopically. They have good mechanical strength. Okay. And, and, and can you explain the, I, I, I get it now, but I remember as an intern, everybody just do around double loaded, triple loaded anchors. And I, I just, I, had, I didn't know what they, what everybody uh, was yeah. referring to, but could you kind of just quickly test based on the difference between those, you know, single versus double versus triple loaded anchors and yeah, why sure. you'd use one so versus others? Simply just the number of sutures you have, you know, you might have a single loaded anchor that says one set of suture limbs, a double loaded would be two, triple loaded would be three. So as you increase in size, or um, as you increase in the number, you of course can get more points of fixation. Um, but there are some limitations. Um, number one is, that, you know, for a small suture anchor, you can't necessarily easily get three, three sets of suture limbs, right? So you may only have a single loaded anchor if it's a very small anchor. Um, and for instance, for, you know, some of the small glenoid anchors for bank cart repairs. Um, and then, you know, there's a limitation in terms of as you move up in terms of the practicality, practicality, both in terms of, you know, what are you bringing everything down to? Because if you have a triple loaded anchor, is that actually beneficial if you bring it all to one point at the center of the anchor there's right. some weight there? And then just the practicality of having six sets of sutures or six suture rooms coming out of this, this one anchor. So it's a balance. Most common is rotator cuff. You're looking at double loaded, double loaded anchors. Okay. Right. Yeah. Double loaded anchors. And, and what other, I guess, technique or technical things when you're putting in these anchors, do you want to know about, you know, I always hear about or read about the dead man's angle and things of, you know, there are different types of anchors like metal anchors or uh, biodegradable, yeah. any difference between any of those? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think uh, we, the, the dead man's angle issue, I think, is is debatable. It makes a lot of sense that you want to put an anchor in approximately 45 degree angle approach. If you if you just think about that, if something pulling counter to that, it does make sense. Um, but prob probably the reality is that most many of these anchors are going to function uh, just fine regardless. Uh, okay. In the rotator cuff environment, it's probably more important that somebody's not doing damage and seeing exactly where they're putting the anchors and placing the sutures in the correct position. Um, you know, I think we used to talk about uh, metal anchors versus uh, composite anchors, metal anchors. The downside of metal anchors is that they are not as easy to get post-operative MRI imaging on as composite or peak. Um, they are also typically solid, so you have no channels that can come up to theoretically encourage healing. Um, but then that, you know, the, the latest really evolution is all suture based anchors, all suture based anchors, especially as medial row anchors have some advantages because they are small. Uh, for instance, a, an all suture based anchor might be 2.6 millimeters in size versus a hard body anchor made of polyether, ether ketone or peak versus composite, you know, those are going to be typically for rotator cuff, five and a half millimeters in size, sometimes four and a half millimeters in size, but you're talking about double the footprint size or double the size of the anchor. And that leads to footprint violation. And remember you're, you're wanting this tendon to heal the bone. 
right? You want right. to heal back to its native serpent. It it's not going to heal to a foreign material. So um, there's, there, I think there's some advantages of all suture uh, or soft anchors in that as medial anchors in that setting. Ah, okay. So, so those, um, you know, obviously they'll take out less bone space yeah. if it's, you know, two, exactly. 2.1 millimeter than, right. than four. Yeah. And those can still, again, it, it can always come as single, double loaded, triple loaded per se. Right. It's, it's just the amount of sutures that are actually inside of the anchor. Yeah. And typically when you're doing cuff, you're always double loaded and above because you want more points of fixation. Okay. And, and what type of sutures are typically in these anchors? Or I guess, what do you use per se? Because, uh, you know, when I was reading this article, you know, the, just to kind of prepare for this, they were talking about you, most of these are number two fiber wire type sutures. Is that something that you use in your practice or what, what drives yeah, most of us, uh, you know, most of us use a, a poly blend suture. Um, so there's lots of different names for this fiber wire is just the Arthrex name for this. Um, okay. Essentially are polyester sutures that are high strength that uh, don't, uh, don't stretch a lot and are really strong. Um, but that's now evolved also into using tape-like sutures that are tend to be a little bit wider and the tape, because they're wider, they have more pull out, um, more resistance to pull through in the tissue because the weak link and rotator cuff repair, of course, is the tendon or the suture tendon interface, which the soft tissue pulls through. It's not necessarily the anchor fixation. It's a suture tendon interface. So having tapes um, has some advantages to pulling out. So, Tapes though can be harder to harder to tie because they're just right. right. So I use an I tend to use an anchor that has a, a tape, a set of tape limbs with a, a number two suture in the middle that has a knotless mechanism. So I can kind of get a combo high, you know, out of that. And it's a it's an all soft anchor. So you know, it's uh, I use what's called a self punching. Uh, knotless fiber tack anchor. That's a trade name, but you know, it's hard to, hard to describe it without giving a trade name on that. One. Right. Um, that uh, as my medial anchor, and then I link that out to, to hard body knotless lateral anchors. And, so. and, you know, you just mentioned a knot versus knotless. And, you know, you know if we go to, you know, at yeah. least, not the end of meetings, but I think I was doing an arthroscopy course. They show you how to do these different knots yep. uh, of some sort to, to note that or to just learn those techniques, but any differences between knotless versus knotted anchors or, you know, you're throwing a knot or what are, what are most people doing these days? Or, you know, in, I guess to, to your knowledge or so all over the place, I think, you know, people who, who tie a lot of knots, they like to tie a lot of knots. I, I was taught by, um, you know, a guy who wrote a lot of papers on tying knots and what the difference is between loop security and knot security. And those are good things to read about. But quite honestly, I, um, I rarely tie knots in my practice. Um, if you look at a couple of studies that have been done on this, one study um, was uh, done by uh, Brian Hnipsiak and Steve Burkhart, and they looked at how, um, how uh, variable arthroscopists were at tying knots, and they, they, uh, they took consultant surgeons, so they should be surgeons who have some knowledge base, uh, who were, who were at a median arthrex and they said, tie a bunch of knots and they were widely, they were all over the place right? between each other and then between their own knots. <laughs> and, then, and then we did a follow-up study where we looked at doing the same thing in Europe, 
but then compared it with knotless constructs. And the knotless constructs tend to be more predictable. So assuming you have good fixation, there are some limitations of knotless constructs, but assuming you have not good, uh, good fixation of the anchor and the bone, um, knotless and you remove all the slack, knotless constructs tend to be more predictable actually. So I use a lot of knotless constructs and they're also faster. And that's nice to have time savings when you're moving in the operating room. And that being said, so that's, that's tying the knots. Another question I had for you is I've seen different attendings use different things, but when it comes to actually putting the suture through the cuff, do you use a self retrieving device or do you use, you know, kind of the pink, um, uh, suture, um, I'm blanking on the, on the name. Lasso, the, yeah. I'm all about, I'm all about predictability and speed. So I use a self, I, you know, um, I like to have it be really efficient. So I use a, um, integrate suture passer, right? So I pass, I fire that suture through the rotator cuff and it has a self self retrieving aspect for me to be able to grab it and go through. And I can, I can use that 90% of the time. There are people who like to use um, suture lassos, but that's a two-step, right? You're, you're taking a lasso, which is basically a curved uh, device that is has a hole in it. So then you can thread a wire and grab a suture and pull back out. Um, or you can even do ones that you can grasp with that are retrograde passing. Then you take a, a device such as a bird beak or, or whatnot that has a pointed aspect that can grab the suture I don't like those most of the time if I can avoid it because they make bigger holes in the rotator cuff. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's integrated passing 95% of the time for, for speed. Okay. That makes sense. And so we kind of already touched base on like your, you know, your ideal construct, you touched base on uh, you mostly using these double row uh, anchors um, using the, uh, the poly blend uh, suture uh, as well. And then you also use, for the most part, the double loaded suture anchors in, mm-hmm. instead of the single and triple. And the last thing that we just kind of will touch on and that you touched on a little bit earlier was about fixing the subscap. Um, when, I guess, do you, do, you all, do you fix this first? And then any tips or tricks that you've learned through your, through your time, as far as fixing the subscat that you, that is found to be uh, pretty helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is just really trying to understand the anatomy and look for it. Um, you have to look, if you're going to do this inside the joint, because you can either approach a subscap intraarticular or subacromal. If you're going to approach it intraarticular, you have to look with a 70 degree arthroscope. So I have a 70 degree arthroscope up in every case um, because if you can't, if you don't have that, you're really not going to see down and really appreciate the footprint completely. Um, I get a lot of people who come and observe surgery. The single most common or thing that they say is, okay, I see, I'm seeing more subscaps than I'm, than I'm seeing otherwise. Right. Um, and if you look at the studies among high level arthroscopists like Burkhardt and LaFosse, they're there 30% of all cases, 50% of rotator cuff tears involve subscapularis. So when somebody's saying they're seeing it 10% of the time or something, they're probably missing it. So knowing, you know, knowing it's there, looking for it with a um, 70 degree scope and appreciating anatomy. And then when it comes down to repair, I think you can approach these either intraarticular or subacromial. I like to say intraarticular 
because I like to be viewing inside the joint and be working through other portals versus if I move the scope up to a anterolateral portal, for instance, and I'm looking down at the subscap, I'm working very close to myself because then I have to work anterior at the same time and I don't get to triangulate as well. So I like staying inside the joint and you should get to them early because you tend to get more swelling in the front of the shoulder. So first thing you want to do is look for the tear. The biceps is torn to subscap. You got to get that out of the way so you can work effectively at your subscap and then you repair your subscap as appropriate before going up. The other thing I was going to say is that, um, that sort of along these lines is that when I do the supraspinatus and infraspinatus, as soon as I do my bony work and kind of do my initial bursal clearing, I'll go back to the 70 degree scope again. And very few people do that. So I, but I do it in every case because it really lets me look back at the rotator cuff and look down over the side so I can really get a good assessment of that tear pattern. Because again, this is all about seeing, right? And if you can't, if you can't see what you're doing, you're not going to be able to do complex arthroscopy. Right. Okay. Uh, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I, I haven't, use the 70 degrees i think it used once during a hip scope but most of ours is the general standard you know 30 degree scope so i have not scoped with a 70 degree scope at some point i probably will yeah. um and do you always they always talk about i guess do you they always talk about this comma sign and, and especially mm-hmm. for us when we're taking tests they like to just show the arthroscopic picture and and, and make you make a diagnosis um for those who are listening that maybe you know intern second year third year um third year residents can you kind of take us through what the comma sign is and you know what the use of it for is for you yeah i mean so it's that um it's basically that medial sling of the biceps tendon right um and that is the the comma is a continuation from the superlateral border of the subscapularis tendon as that arcs up and goes to the supraspinatus tendon And that's why I was saying it's so important to maintain that in place. But as you get retracted tears, the subscapularis pulls over, you get that common tissue effect where you use that as a way to identify the uh, subscapularis tendon. Um, And if you can, if you identify that common, you can then, it will always lead you down to the superlateral border of the subscapularis. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Uh, well, I, I think we we touched on a good amount of things here. I think we covered um, most of the basics for you know understanding rotator cuff repair and the principles behind it. We talked about uh, the rotator cable and the crescent. We talked about the different types of anchors. Uh, we talked about the different types of tears and their mobility and kind of a little bit of how to repair those. Talked about um, uh, subscap tears. Anything else that you want, you know, just our, our listeners listening to this to know about, or at least be conscious of when we're talking about just our, you know, rotator cuff repairs and kind of these surgical principles. Um, I think we talked about the seeing things, and then other than that, I think um, you know, arthroscopy has a real kind of feel to it. You just, you know, you have to really try to project in your mind where you are 
Um, and some of that is just over time and you have to get the reps. But I think people overlook what they are feeling. I try to think about the scope of my instruments as an extension of my hands. Right. Obviously, they don't have tactile nerve, you know, nerve endings on there, but you can you can start to get the feeling of where um, what your scope is hitting, what's it moving up against. And if you approach it from a feeling kind of standpoint, I think that you'll you'll find you can move more fluidly through things. And by doing that, it'll, it'll help you kind of triangulate more as you, you know, as you are inserted and creating your portals of the spinal and et cetera. Perfect. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that was a, a good piece of advice is just, you know, imagining these tools of extension as your hands and your own fingers and using that to be able to triangulate. Uh, well, Dr. Nard, I think this, again, has been a great um, talk, great episode. Again, I learned a lot. Uh, just from talking to you and I'll, when I go back, I'll take some more notes on some of the things that you said, because I'm actually going into sports. Um, so I'll be doing some of these. But uh, again, we I really appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast and being a guest on uh, on the Nail the Ortho podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. First episode of the year. We hope that you all enjoyed it and that you all learned something. <laughs> I hope so. Um, please go and leave a review if you have not already. Be the first person to leave us a review in 2023. Now, how, how awesome would that be? You you go on to Nailed It Ortho on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, however you listen to us, and you are the first one to leave us a review in 2023. I'm not going to lie. That seems pretty awesome. <laughs> so without further ado everybody we'll see you all in the next episode